It's time for the Documentary Podcast. It's episode 17, and I'm Kathy Kalaszewski. And I am Steve Byrne. So today we are going to talk about the International Documentary Association's awards. Steve was out there uh, about a week ago, and he talked to some pretty interesting people. Yeah, I got to spend some time in L.A. leading up to the awards. Um, if you're not familiar, the IDA is kind of a organization that promotes and advances the art form and works with filmmakers, and they have awards every year. Um, it's turned in, it's turned into an increasingly kind of big event. So this episode is going to be broken up into really three components. I spent a little time with the IDA, IDA's executive director, Simon Kummery, that was on the Friday before the Saturday. So we're, we're kind of a setup interview and also talking to him. He's just taken over that role. I believe it was earlier this summer. He had been with POV for a really long time. So we learn about his transition and kind of what he's expecting and how he feels the awards um, fit in the broader landscape of the documentary world. The next morning um, before the awards themselves also, I talked with Gordon Quinn, who is uh, one of the co-founders of the Cartem Quinn um, film company in Chicago, very um, well-known for socially socially relevant documentaries, some of their biggest stuff that Gordon has worked on, things like Hoop Dreams, Life Itself, many other big films, both as a director and a producer. So take a look back at his career and also where he sees the doc world going. Lastly, um, I went out to the awards themselves. I should say I wasn't actually at the awards ceremony, but um, as appropriate, I made it to the after party, though. So I got to spend some time with some people who had won awards that night. Um, Stephen Riley, he's the director of Listen to Me Marlin, that won for Best Writing. Um, talked a little bit to Brett Morgan, who's Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, won Best Editing. And also Matthew Heineman, who was the director cinematographer of Cartel Land, which won the Courage Under Fire Award. Um, so those that's a different thing for us on the podcast. We're kind of live in the moment. You'll hear a lot of ambient noise. You'll hear a little bit of excitement, probably more than a few ums from me. It was a kind of a... I don't want to say I was jittery, but it was just, it was a very active night. Lots of people running around. If you didn't get to see um, some of the big winners of the evening, the best feature award went to look aside, Joshua Oppenheimer's Look of Silence. Um, it was a very, very strong category. Um, best op episodic series went to uh, Chef's Table. And best short form series, Do Not Track. I'm trying to think if there was a couple other ones that might be worth mentioning. Curated series was a tie between Independent Lens and POV. And, you know, all the other awards are on the IDA's website, if you want. We'll provide a link to us uh, to that on our podcast page. So when you think about IDA versus um, the Oscars, uh, is, it, is it kind of Golden Globe in nature? Like Golden Globe kind of always sets up what people might expect would be best picture at the Oscars. When you look at Cartel Land and Listen to Me Marlin um, and uh, Look of Silence, those are all shortlisted, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for the Oscars. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if it's a perfect analogy because I think there, over the years, there, there hasn't been tons and tons of respect for the voting process that goes into the Golden Globes, even though it often, very, very often is a precursor for the Oscars. I think I would look at the IDAs in some ways, it's more of a, um, it's so intrinsic to the documentary world itself in a way that maybe even the Oscars isn't. So there's a very, very, um, I think there's a very intelligent voting block that's taking to it, that's involved with the IDA and very involved in the doc world. Um, I, you know, 
there's something to what you're saying there, but I guess I just don't feel like it's a, it's a perfect match. Um, though several of these films, as you say, are shortlisted and, you know, I don't know that look of silence that won the IDA best feature is the odds on favorite for the Oscars, but I have, you know, a lot of stuff I've read might, might indicate that. I think it's, it's on the short list of the short list of, of films that could likely win that award. Yeah. It's an incredible film. So it's a, It'll be interesting as we go into Oscar season, what actually kind of rises to that top five. Oscar, I think, tends to like stuff that has broad reach and will play um, and has played well in theaters. That might be one thing, you know, um, The Act of Killing was nominated but didn't win. Um, so is, is it a film that was almost too serious and too scary and didn't reach a super, super broad audience in theaters? That's possible. It could play out that way. But like you say, it'll be interesting to watch. Certainly, Look of Silence is a, would be a very deserving winner if it did indeed win. Well, you can guarantee that we will be talking Oscars not long from now, but today we are still uh, rehashing what happened at IDA. So uh, without further ado, we're going to get right into Steve's experiences there. So we are here today on the documentary podcast on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles with Simon Kilmurray, the executive director of the International Documentary Association. We want to very much welcome him for spending a little bit of time with us. Um, we're doing this. Um, the IDA has their big awards coming up as we're recording this in one day. We're on a Friday. The awards are on Saturday night. So we thought this was a good time to talk to Simon because he joint took this role earlier this year, I believe in April, and kind of check in what IDA has been up to and how the transition has been going for him. So Simon, thank you so much for spending a little time with the documentary podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here today. Um, it's been a big transition for me. Um, I was, prior to coming to IDA, I was at POV, the PBS series, for 16 years and nine years as executive producer there uh, living in New York and now I'm in LA with this new organization of which I've been a member for a long time but now getting to see it from the inside. So um, we know you were with POV but what in a broader sense brought you into the documentary world? Why were you drawn to it and why did you, why did you stick with it? I really came into it as a fan. Um, I didn't study film. Um, uh, I remember back in the you know late 80s and early 90s in New York um, watching actually POV on broadcast and seeing films like Silver Lake Life and just being oh my gosh this is completely different from the kinds of documentaries that I knew growing up which were the kind of the, the BBC Voice of God um, great stuff but you know a little dry um, and I remember going to see Brothers Keeper um, uh, in the theaters, Joe Berlinger's film, and um, uh, just being kind of so riveted by it, and uh, just started watching a lot of films. Um, and then I came into POV really on the business management side as managing director, kind of to run the nonprofit organization side of things, and got more and more involved in editorial. And pretty quickly, um, that was what I wanted to be doing, I realized. So um, leaving POV and coming here, you mentioned it's been a pretty big transition. I mean, I imagine New York to L.A. is is one. But how about in like what you're doing on your day on your day to day job? Well, um, you know, POV is very close to the content, um, you know, watching cuts, working with filmmakers, helping them strategize around both the story that they were trying to make, but then also the, 
distribution of the film, what they were going to be doing theatrically and on the festival circuit. I was out there watching a lot of films, watching a lot of pitches. Um, so I am farther away from that content side of things. Although when we have things like the screening series that we just ended um, a couple of weeks ago where we had, I think, 24, 25 films screening um, uh, leading up to kind of award season, you know, I was involved working with those filmmakers and helping to, to select those films. Um, uh, you mentioned the awards which are coming up uh, this weekend. Um, uh, I've been to that ceremony a number of times as a nominee and as a, uh, a recipient of, of the award there. Uh, but now seeing it being produced from behind the scenes, you just see how much work it really is. Um, and that's taken up a lot of time, obviously, uh, these past couple of months. Once we get past this, you know, what I'm looking forward to is you know, sitting with the team here and with the board of directors to look at how I think we can grow the organization and be a more effective institution serving filmmakers, um, uh, both in terms of funding and advocacy and policy work. Um, and uh, you know, doing another conference. So there's, lo I have lots of ideas which I, I want to get focused on, but I have to get past this awards thing first. Um, you mentioned, you know, helping filmmakers. How much do you view do you view the IDA as primarily um, kind of an internal organization, as in helping people in the documentary world? And and how much do you feel it is more consumer facing? I think I, I kind of look at it as concentric circles or, or, or kind of constituencies. Our main constituency is the, the creative filmmaking community. Directors, producers, editors, people who are involved in actually making these films and getting them out into the world. Um, the next circle out of that is a kind of, um, uh, kind of the broader industry, media industry of which we are a part. And then the circle outside of that is the audience. And I think we want to try and reach all of them. But our primary focus is, is going to be on the, the people actually making these films and what we can be doing to help them. Not asking you to brag, but what do you think you primarily bring to the organization? What are your, what are your strengths? Well, I've been um, on the, the documentary circuit for a long time. So I am reasonably well connected with the filmmaking community. I've done some of the policy and advocacy work previously at POV when we were working on some of the fair use stuff, which IDA was also very closely involved in, so I have some experience in that space. Um, I also have a pretty good um, network amongst the funding community, um, and then also amongst the um, international filmmaking community, and we are the International Documentary Association. Although our work has primarily up until now been in the United States uh, with a particular focus on Los Angeles. So I'm looking at what we can be doing to be a more effective national organization and then how we can be partnering with other organizations around the world to, um, to share resources and share information and be supportive to networks of filmmakers outside of the United States. So to speak to the awards a little bit, could you talk a little about how you see them fitting in in the broader scheme? Like, where does it fit with like the Indie Spirit Awards or the Oscars? Um, you know, you've got a, a great lineup of, um, you know, talking about the feature nominees. You know, some really great films that came out this year. Some of them have been mentioned in shortlists or in other award ceremony. What is what is IDA hoping to do with theirs? 
I think what the awards does, and it's particularly important in this town, I think, which is very dominated by um, by Hollywood, that there is a space which is dedicated to celebrating documentary film. You know, we we're in this period where there are so many fantastic docs being made; they're being released in theaters, um, and I, th- you know, IDA has an obligation. Uh, to help keep those films at as high a profile as possible, and I think the awards helps to do that. Um, you know, they're, they're the indie spirits are fantastic, um, but they're both dark and scripted. Um, same with the Gothams. Um, Cinema Eye, which is another great you know celebration, is a more kind of grassroots. Um, uh, Community celebration, and it's a great, it's mm. a great event. Um, but I think it's important that docs have that profile in this community in LA. So that that's a good transition to maybe broaden out a little bit to the doc world in general. You referenced um, so many films being made and so many great films being made. How do you? What's your kind of? You put your finger in the air where the wind is blowing, or how the? I guess the thermometer. What, about what the space is like right now. It certainly seems to me, you know, the technology has made it easier for people to make movies, but that doesn't always translate to either getting paid or getting them seen. So if you don't agree with it, please don't agree with that. But what would be your sense there? No, I still think that's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's still not a business where people are coming into are going to make a whole lot of money. Um, and in an increasingly crowded marketplace, you're you have more people chasing chasing those those dollars. On the flip side of it, you do have more people coming into the space who are interested in supporting this work and distributing it, whether it's philanthropic support, people who are interested in impact and run the issues that the films deal with, or whether it's you know commercial distribution support with you know streaming services and SVOD services um, such as Netflix and Amazon. Um, I, there are, you know, over the past few years, we've had new people coming in doing short form, um, New York Times and Guardian and, and amongst many others. Um, uh, some, you know, cable outlets who had used to be used to do docs and then moved away from it are now coming back to it. You know, Discovery and MSNBC, which I think is exciting. Time magazine has now got a documentary unit so there's a whole kind of flourishing of people who are interested in the space you know one of the challenges then is going to be how do you find the audience for these films and market them and make sure that they get out there and into the world so there's got to be an investment in that Um, but the economics of it are always going to be challenging I think for the majority of filmmakers um there's always going to be a few which pop out and, and do quite well. You mentioned the word engagement. That certainly seems a big buzzword. Seems to be a big buzzword in the last couple of years. Um, where do you fall on this idea that you know? To it seems like some filmmakers seem a little bit even frustrated. The sense that like if you can't just make a movie, you have to have a plan and you have to show that there's going to be some reaction or even action as a result of that film is that something i know the ida at, at its conference tackled that a little bit where do where do you fall on the spectrum with that well we did a lot of engagement work at pov um and it was always part of our mission that we felt that you know 
it's great to get your film on broadcast, but we want to work with filmmakers to get them get those films out into out into communities, into the hands of people who can actually use them for for engagement and for education. And um, uh, but it's a heavy burden to place on a filmmaker, not only to make a film, but then also to be a, a social activist. And you know, some people are very well suited to that, and others less so. Um, it's it's a double-edged sword, I think. Is uh, you know, there's been pressure from some funders who. Um, you know, think that this is you know, if you're going to do a film, you have to have an engagement strategy. I'm not sure that every film needs an engagement engagement strategy. I think some films are very effective with it, and some filmmakers are very good at it. Um, uh, but the primary responsibility of any film is to engage the audience, and uh, that's where I think people should be putting most of their efforts, because if you don't have a film that's engaging, who cares about engaging visually as a story is a um who cares about the engagement strategy um on the on the flip side it's brought a lot of new resources into uh the industry um discovery channel is doing a fantastic and huge job with race and extinction around a worldwide engagement effort and visibility effort um uh, so as with anything, it has its pros and its cons. I think it's it's ultimately uh, the good outweighs the, the negative. But um, uh, I, I, what I get concerned with is that um, films which don't have an engagement strategy end up not getting the support I think they deserve. And there's a place for art in this space too. Where do you feel um, technology is pushing things? It seems like you know a lot of at a lot of film festivals you're seeing you know an emphasis on interactive type films, you know whether it's the um, virtual reality or things that go even beyond that. What, what's your sense about how that is going to integrate into the documentary community? It's a new form of um, of nonfiction storytelling, um, uh, uh, which I think is an exciting space. And the POV, we did some experiments in this with you know both some interactive um, projects which were either for mobile or for web, but also experimenting with Oculus Rift and, um, and, uh, and, and, and you know, using VR as the kind of immersive storytelling tool. Um, it's still a nascent form. It's still kind of finding its language, and I think no one's really clear on what direction that is going to go. Um, and I think it's going to just keep flourishing. I think it's actually incredibly exciting also moves you away from linear linear storytelling or at least the uh, the ability to do non-linear storytelling it moves you into a more immersive space um so it's another tool in the arsenal um you know i don't think that means that long-form films are going to go away um but there's going to be certain films which certain stories which lend themselves to that kind of um experience um i ask you one last question before i let you go if um, where do you kind of see the doc? How do you think the documentary space is going to look in three to five years? Will will this will it continue to spread outward, or is there going to be more attention on smaller numbers, or what? Which it's a tough question, That's but a really tough question. <laughs> you know, I I I, I don't know. Um, I, I can say, looking back, I've seen um, over the past fifteen years or so enormous growth, um, both in quantity of films being made and the quality of films being made and then audiences um, I think there's a hunger for this is an overused word so I'm not 
happy I'm using it, but I can't think of anything else. Kind of authentic stories. Um, um, and I think there's an understanding or appreciation on the part of audiences that these films can be as entertaining as anything else that's out there. Um, so I think it's going to continue growing. I think the um, kind of virtual and experimental space is going to grow exponentially, and we're going to see some interesting stuff coming out of that. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, there's... I think what's really special about a lot of these films is, you know, we're dealing with a lot, you know, there's a lot of big issues in the world and everyone's kind of, you know, talking about them and there's policy papers written about them. But when you spend an hour with a family that's living that experience or someone who's going through that experience, it changes your perspective. And I think that's what these films ultimately, whether they're a, a, a long-form piece, a short piece, a VR piece, whatever it might be, um, these films have the ability to change people's perspective on issues, which I think is a good thing. Once again, we want to thank Simon Kilmurray for spending some time with the Documentary Podcast. Really appreciated your perspective and have a great time at the awards tomorrow night. Thank you so much. We would like to welcome today Gordon Quinn to the Documentary Podcast. Um, we are talking to him on Saturday morning. It is a uh, few hours before he is going to receive the Career Achievement Awards at the International Documentary Association's annual awards tonight. Um, Gordon is a longtime producer and director for Cartem Quinn Films in Chicago and um, very much deserving of this award, and we want to thank him for spending a little time with us today. So, right. Gordon, Gordon, I wanted to start out for people who maybe aren't familiar with Cartem Quinn or are maybe only a little bit familiar with it. Could you talk to us about its its beginnings and what you were hoping to do with it when you started it with a couple of other people? And uh, do you think that that mission still exists now? Um, I think that the, the core underlying mission is still there. Uh, and that's... Uh, you know, we've changed, we evolve, you know, history changes, the world around us changes, and so we're an incredibly different organization than we were when we started. But I think we're still trying to do the same thing, which is to make films that, you know, look at what's happening in the world, look at things that are going on, and, and that can engage in the democratic process, kind of give people a way of understanding situations or people that they might not come in contact with and to tell, tell stories that move people emotionally. If you go back to when um, the organization first started, kind of what was your role in, in getting it going? Um, well, there were three of us uh, that founded it. We had been students at the University of Chicago, uh, myself, uh, Jerry Temener, and Stan Carter. This uh, thus our hard-to-pronounce name, which sounds, uh, we thought it sounded like Potemkin, the famous Russian movie. And we were very influenced by Cinema Verite. We were very influenced by the work of, you know, the people that I mentioned who have gotten this award before. And we were, uh, I had actually gone off and worked in the film industry. At the University of Chicago at that time, uh, there was no film production being taught. So, you know, I needed to kind of learn the craft uh, after studying philosophy and literature and things like that. And then came back uh, and we made our first film, Home for Life, in 1966. So next year we're going to be 50 years old. And 
you know, I started at the beginning was the one with the technical skills. Uh, Stan actually left in the first few years. We're still friendly. He lives in San Francisco. We keep in touch. And a few years later, after we made our first group of films, uh, you know, after about five or six years, Jerry Temer also left. Uh, but by that time, we'd been joined by Jerry Blumenthal, who's really one of the other founders who passed away uh, last year. And the organization just kind of kept growing and changing, you know, in the <clears throat> sort of in the late 60s and the, uh, the late 60s and 70s, we, um, we had become a, uh, a collective, uh, you know, the, it was the 60s, there was a lot of, uh, you know, political ferment in the country. Uh, and so we really got involved in kind of working with people in unions, working with teachers, working with other kinds of organizers. And our group really sort of expanded to about 13, 14 people, uh, men and women, some were filmmakers, some were not, uh, trying to change the world, basically. It's what we were all trying to do in the 60s. Do you, going back to uh, your first film, Home for Life, 1966, do you remember what it was like? Um, and could you talk a bit, a little bit about your approach to doing your very first movie and how your approach has changed over the years? You've been involved in so many. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we started off with that very observational uh, approach. We were making a film in an old age home uh, and, you know, we were we were sort of trying to be the fly on the wall in a sense. But I think very quickly, even in that film, and you see some of it in the film, there's a scene where one of the characters uh, were alone in the room, and I'm filming him on his first days, putting away his possessions. Uh, and the old man starts to talk to me, and I start to talk back to him from behind the camera, and the camera starts to respond to, you know, he's showing the camera pictures and that kind of thing. And right away, we started, you know, kind of shifting to a more, you know, kind of maybe full-blown cinema verite where we engage with our subjects uh, in, a, in a more active way. Uh, so you even see that beginning to happen in that very first film. Uh, and it was an exciting time. You know, we, you know, there was a lot going on technologically, too, you know, uh, the Albert Mazel, I bought my first lens from Albert, and, you know, I'd seen his camera and the crystal-controlled kind of camera that he had. And then in Chicago, I was working for this guy, Mike Shea, and he had brought back to Chicago for, I think it cost him like $20,000, which, in the, you know, in the 60s was a fortune. He had come back with one of the Leacock Pennybaker design cameras that were made by Mitch Bagdanich, and... That was really, uh, you know, it was an incredibly, you know, no wires between the audio person and the camera person. You were completely free to move around in the real world. You could put the camera down and the batteries were on the camera. There was nothing, you know, no wires on you, nothing kind of connecting you to the camera. And I was using an Oricon conversion, which is what all these cameras were based on. Uh, and I was talking to a friend who was a physicist at the University of Chicago, 
And he said, gee, I can build you the electronics. We won't, won't be as elegant. You know, we won't put them inside the camera, and it won't be quite the magazine, won't be slanting off the back and everything. But I can build you something like that for, you know, a few hundred dollars. And so it was like, I was like, well, I don't know, Danny, but we gave it a shot. And I used that test, what I shot Home for Life with. Uh, we used that camera for many years. He actually did. So we had the second pistol control camera in Chicago. We it's had interesting. the first back in Chicago. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because we tend to think of, like, you know, kind of the times we live in now is, are the ones that are so influenced by the technological innovations. But really, that's a through line that probably goes back to the very beginning of cinema. There's always something coming along that changes uh that changes what people are allowed to do and are able to do with their cameras. Absolutely. And, you know, we were, I mean, to me, you know, sometimes I'll show a movie and someone will say, you know, like, oh, what camera did you use? What camera did you use? And it's like, in a sense, it's a long question. You know, it's like we use whatever we had. We used, but you have this, you want to tell a story in a certain kind of way. And so you become, Sort of, you know, you you look for the equipment, you look for the things that are going to enable you to do that, and the ability to record good sound in the field, the ability to, for the sound to cut the wire between the sound man and the cameraman. Those were things that let the early verite makers really record reality uh, without having to stop it from moving on. You know, and so it made a huge difference. Um, you know, now the you know, but on the other hand, the first 20 years that I made movies, it was 16 millimeter, it was pocket holes, it was, you know, the cameras changed, but the basic technology changed that remained the same. And now things change every week, you know, it seems like. You know, there's, there's new digital ways of doing things. For sure. But I think, for me, it's more what has as much influence on how we tell stories is the reality of people's lives and how people's lives change and the political and economic and social conditions where we are historically that also influence those kinds of things. You know, so even with Home for Life, we thought we finished Home for Life. The film was very well received, but we thought we had made a film that was going to change the way that America treated and looked at the elderly, uh, people like myself today, of course. <laughs> Now I am my cookie in the movie. Uh, but it wasn't really. It, it didn't start that level of conversation. It really was used to say, well, we have these institutions, these old age homes, and how can we make them better? And it was used a lot to kind of sort of say, how can we make them better without raising the more fundamental question? And so that, you know, we, we responded to that. We started thinking, well, what do we need to do in terms of telling stories to really change how people see the world. And Hoop Dreams was a huge breakthrough film, Steve James's film, uh, Steve James and Peter Gilbert and Frederick Marx, who did that film. And it, you know, it's an emotional kind of storytelling. It's a storytelling kind of storytelling that draws people in, it draws one into people's lives over a long period of time. And the response to that film was something that we, you know, really, changed our thinking about how to tell a story that's going to kind of open up people to seeing people and being empathetic with people that they may not, not normally come into contact in their lives, that they may think, oh, 
I'm not, you know, a lot of people saw Hoopians who were like, hey, I'd never watch a film about a social issue or they'd never, you know, watch a film about, quote, inner city people. Uh, but they watched Hoop Dreams, and I, hopefully they were changed by it. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about Hoop Dreams. You know, for those, I'm sure most of our audience probably knows it follows the lives of a couple of inner-city Chicago high school basketball players over the course of several years, um, went on to win a ton of awards, including the Academy Award nominated. Do you remember what it was like, kind of the feel when, like, oh, my gosh, you know, we have a movie that's, like, kind of resonating beyond the documentary community into a broader, you know, a broader consciousness. Right. What was it like? What was it like for you guys there? Yeah, actually the only nomination we ever got was for the editing of Hoop Dreams. Uh, it was a, uh, you know, it was a bit of a scandal that it wasn't nominated for best documentary. Uh, and, uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, you know, who had that, uh, that, uh, TV programming, they went ballistic over it. And, you know, we're from Chicago. We were, to be honest, a little bit provincial. And when we went to Sundance with the film, the film got into Sundance, we were pretty naive, I think, uh, about, you know, what we, what we had done, but we sort of were on a fast learning curve. How did it feel when it, when Hoops, Hoop Dreams really resonated into a broader really took off, and, yeah. Yeah, and no, it was, off. yeah, it was, it was tremendously exciting. Tremendously exciting to realize that we had done one of the hardest things that there is to do in documentary filmmaking, which is to connect with people who aren't already sympathetic with the characters that you're portraying or with the issues that you're portraying. And so if you look at some of our films that preceded it, some of the films about labor struggles and some of the films from the uh, earlier in the 60s about the, the women's health care movements and things like that, the Chicago Maternity Center story. You can see that they're more, you know, they're a little bit more agitprop. They're like, we are part of this group, that's, and this is a film that's a part of that. We're trying to change society. We are speaking for these people. We are telling their story. And the film was a tool to be used by people who were trying to organize around the issues. Uh, but one thing that was always talked about in our meetings and the political meetings that we had was, you know, how do you how do you speak to people that aren't necessarily sympathetic to the issues that you're raising? And that's what these things did. And it really changed our thinking, you know, and it changed the way that the kinds of films that our Templin got involved in and the kind of things we did after that. But I think the reason we're still here 50 years later is we don't keep making the same film, you know. And if you look at our films, you can see a lot of different styles, a lot of different ways of approaching a story. Some of that has to do with the kind of story we're telling, but it also has to do with the period of history we're in and what we think is happening out in the world and what, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're very dialectical in that way. We're always interacting with what's around us, either the situation that we're making a film about, what's happening in the world, what's happening in the kind of the whole field of documentary filmmaking. All of those things, I think, affect who we are and, and how we try to make films. So we've talked a little bit about a movie that was almost 50 years old, one that's more than 20 years old. But that I don't want to imply that you're not still keeping really busy. You've worked on things recently like The Interrupters, Trials of Muhammad Ali, Absolutely. like yourself. 
life itself. Is there something that you've done in the last few years that's really, um, you know, came from your heart, you felt really strongly about or most proudly about? Well, you know, those uh, trials of Muhammad Ali uh, was, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bill Siegel, that was his dream for almost 10 years. I mean, literally, before the film was done, we... It's it's a historical documentary, so it's not like we followed the story over time, which is usually why it takes so long with us. But that was something he'd been trying to do for a long time, and was pretty thrilled with that film. You mentioned the Interrupters, another film. It's 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 uh, you know it's almost it's 20 years old, but it's something we did right after Hoop Dreams. That I know that Steve and I have a special, has a special place in our heart as our film Stevie, uh, because we make we don't shy away from the difficult, you know. We're not afraid to take on a character that people may have ambiguous feelings about or that is difficult to, to like. Uh, you know, we could have easily, if we'd done Hoop Dreams 2, that would have been a no-brainer to fund. Stevie was almost impossible to get funding for. Finally, the MacArthur Foundation came in right near the end and bailed us out. But we were all working on it for nothing. It was this story and this passion to tell this story that was, you know, important to all of us who worked on that project. We have a project right now, Raising Bertie, which is just being finished. Uh, they may have just picture locked it today on here in California, so, you know, I was just working with them last week. It's by Margaret Byrne and Leslie Simmer, who's on staff with us, is editing it, and uh, Ian Kibbe. Uh, is now uh, the producer. He's someone who kind of came up through our champlain. He was a, an intern and, and, you know, then started working with us on various kinds of ways as a freelancer, and now he's he's working on this film. So these not – Leslie happens to be on staff, but I'm giving you that sense that our champlain is not – you know, a lot of people who are connected to our larger community work on various projects and films that are going on. But that's – a film that follows three boys coming of age uh, in rural poverty-stricken county in North Carolina, uh, you know, African-American, real problems with schools and, and what their opportunities and future can be like. And, you know, it's, it's a film that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge. It's, it's not a story that everybody's going to immediately go, oh, I love these boys. They're so charming. You know, they've got they've got some issues, and we want people to have to come to terms with that. Something I think that's always been important to us is that you know we sometimes forget when you make films about young people and young people growing up that they are boys, and boys screw up, they get into trouble. We all did it when we were young, uh, and we have to make sure that that they're able to get a you know, get another chance at life. After you receive your award, I'm assuming you're not uh, going home and uh, putting your feet up on the couch. Uh, what, what's next for you? The thing I'm trying to finish now is something that I actually shot before Cartemplin was existed. In 1963, with Chemner and Carter, the guys that I eventually, you know, founded the organization with, we shot uh, when we were students at the University of Chicago, the great Chicago school boycott. Uh, 
And this was, you know, 63 of the schools in Chicago were largely segregated. And, you know, not by law, but just the fact of segregation. And they, the African-American schools were overcrowded and, you know, always under-resourced. But they started putting trailers behind on the parking lots and things of the African-American schools to deal with the overcrowding so they wouldn't have to put the kids into the adjacent white school. And that just, you know, that was a straw that, that did it for the, the black community. And 250,000 kids stayed out of school, and there was a huge march and everything. And we knew it was a historic moment, and so we filmed it. And over the years, I've offered ties in the prize. I, you know, I've offered it to other people. Uh, no one really has told the story. So now I'm finishing that movie. I've, I'm pretty much done with interviewing uh, all of the people who were leadership in the march. And I'm now getting a few more interviews with people who were young people who walked out of school, you know, or today in their 60s. Uh, and we hope to have that finished. By next summer, and I'm, I'm excited about that project uh, to actually get it done after all these years. But we make it available. We uh, it's it's also it's a film. You know, <clears throat> I talked a little bit about how you change with the times and you change with the technology. So I want it to be a short film. I want it to be a half hour film. It's got some material with people who are struggling around the schools today and young people. We put a short clip of what we were doing uh, up on our website. We have a 63boycott.com website. You can go there and sort of see what we're up to. And we put this little clip up there. And these young people who are protesting about what's going up and going on in the schools now found our clip, took it off of YouTube, mashed it up with their own material. Or they, they mashed it up, and then they put it on YouTube. They took it off our website. So that was like, wow, this is great, you know, when we found those kids and then did some interviews with them. And they made that connection between what young people were doing in 63 and, and what they're doing today. And the website is how we're using the website as a way of finding people who appear in our footage. So it's like Facebook, you know, you can just click on a picture and tag somebody and say, this is who this is or this is me. You know, here's my contact information. And so that's how we're finding a lot of the people that are there. So. That's, a, that's a really fascinating way to bring uh, history and make it totally contemporary. Exactly. And when, because I didn't have it done on the 50th anniversary, uh, you know, we, it was a big event in Chicago at the DuSable Museum. And we showed, I had, I, the film ultimately I wanted to be a 30-minute film. We had a 20-minute edit and we showed it there and had a big panel afterwards and you know the place was packed and but because so many people saw it then we started getting all these requests to show the film and I kept saying you know first I was saying well it's not done yet blah 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 and then we were like you know what that's that's the old way of doing things now what we do is anybody who wants the film we make it available to someone's having an event or they're doing something they want to show it in a class we just make this work in progress available to them uh, and let them use it so I mean it's you know 
distribution methods and cross-platform thing, things and all of that are just as important as what's happening with the, with the technology. To, to kind of wind down, I wanted to ask you a little bit, what are your feelings about um, receiving the Career Achievement Award at the, at the IDAs tonight? Well, I'm, it's, I'm thrilled to be getting it from the IDA. Uh, you know, I, I, I think one of the things I'll say in my little brief, you know, they ask you to say a few words is that uh, a year ago I gave a commencement address at Columbia College in Chicago and kind of the backbone of what I was telling the students is you are now, they were media students, you know, I said you're now coming into this field Join the organizations that represent your field. Join the IDA, join the IFP, join the unions and guilds that represent the part of the field that you work in, because we can change the field. We can, you know, don't don't always be asking, uh, what should I be making to be successful? Be asking, what is it that I want to make? What are the stories that I want to tell? And if the, the field or the media, you know, the, the the gatekeepers don't seem to be open to that, then figure out a way to, to change the playing field so that you can do what you think is really important. And I've been involved in a lot of those struggles over the years from, you know, participating in the creation of ITVS to the whole movement around fair use to uh, the Indie Caucus, which just recently was in a, quite a battle with PBS about the programming of PLD and Independent Lens, where the series are incredibly important for documentary filmmakers. And we were basically saying to public television, no, you can't move them to a night where they're going to have a hard time getting an audience. You know, we, we are still here from us as an organized group. So it means a lot to be getting this award from the IDA, which is one of those organizations that does represent our field. It also happens that it's going to be presented to me by Hessel Wexler and uh, Chaz Ebert, both of whom have uh, Chicago connections. You know, I, I know them both from the Midwest. Uh, Roger reviewed our first film, Home for Life, uh, you know, some 50 years ago. Uh, and Haskell is someone, I think, who came out here and has done incredible things in, in Hollywood as a cameraman but has also continued to make films about social issues and, and about, you know, kind of some of the political struggles that have been important to us. And, and I think, you know, he doesn't get back there much now, I don't think, but he, he stays connected to Chicago. Well, cool. Um, we want to thank uh, Gordon Quinn, the founder and artistic director um, at Cartenton Films. He is receiving the Career Achievement Awards at the IDAs tonight. We hope he has a great time of that. And really want to thank him for his time that he spent today with the documentary podcast. Okay, well, thank you. That's nice talking to you. I am standing in the center of the Paramount Studios lot, just outside the Paramount Theater, where a little bit earlier this evening, um, the IDAs presented their awards. Um, we'll go through a list um, at the outset of the podcast, uh, all who all the big winners were, but I'm basically circling around and just capturing uh, conversations with just a couple of people who snagged some big awards. So listen up, and we'll get to meet some of the, tonight's big winners. We are glad to have um, on the documentary podcast right now, we're standing at the Paramount Theaters, Stephen Riley, who tonight at the IDEA Awards 
um, won an award for best writing, I believe, for his movie Listen to Me, Marlin. Um, so congratulations on that award, and just to ask you a couple quick questions about how it went. How did it feel winning tonight? Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, um, uh, and uh, especially because it's uh, you know the whole crowd is uh, fellow documentary makers, so it's nice to. Uh, be recognised for for writing in, in 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 you know in that from yeah fellow fellow filmmakers of course yeah the film was so amazing and I I mean I personally learned so much about Marlon Brando in watching it um, what was the biggest challenge in using all of the audio pieces you had from him and bringing it together in such a cohesive way because in some ways what he did was scattered. Um, well, I mean, just starting with Brando's character, the guy was so uh, was so complex and complicated that it took me a long time um, uh, in researching to even get a basic hold on, you know, who he was and what he was about. Um, and it was a long, long process of uh, reading books, meeting everybody I could from his um, from his life, his family, friends, and so on. Um, and then, of course, going through this um, huge amount of audio archive we had, which was, you know, was hundreds of hours. Um other winners tonight was there any movie that you saw this year that really stuck out to you that you were glad to see get um, some recognition at the IDAs tonight um, well uh, do you know I really enjoyed watching Cartel Land um, I saw that at Sundance so that was fantastic like the Russian Woodpecker as well um, haven't seen the look of silence which I'm very keen to watch um, and um, uh, yeah it's been a strong year so what is next for Stephen Riley? You have a new project in the works. Um, can you talk about anything yet? Uh, do you know, not, not well, I mean, there's, a, there's stuff in the works, but not just yet. I'm just trying to figure out. There's a few projects that I'm sort of like juggling right now, trying to see which one, um, uh, you know, takes hold first. And if people want to see Listen to Me, Marlon, what's the best way to do that right now? Well, um, it's on Showtime right now, so it's um, a great. I, I didn't realise that on, I, I don't have. I'm uh, living in London. I don't know how Showtime operates, but apparently they got Listen to Me Marlon on loop for this month, so you can uh, you can catch it right now. Will it be coming to VOD or any other streaming services like that? Do you know, I imagine so. I mean, I I, I don't know what the full rollout is, but yeah, DVD before long, uh, and um, and uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll be on some platform. Excellent. Really want to take uh, thanks, Stephen, for spending a couple minutes with us. And again, congratulations on your award tonight. Thank you. Pleasure. We are here with uh, Brett Morgan, who this evening at the IDA Awards uh, won an award for best editing for his Montage of Heck documentary about Kurt Cobain. So I want to say congratulations to Brett and also thanks for spending a couple minutes with us here. Sure thing. So how did it feel to snag that award? Have you won stuff here before or...? I won the best film uh, in 1999 for On the Ropes, and uh, that was, what, 16 years ago, it was 1999, and it was a very different time back then. I was at, On the Ropes was my thesis film at NYU, I knew nothing about awards or anything. I'd submitted to the IDA, and, uh, and this is how I found out I won. I, I guess I was sort of confident, but I called the office, and I said, hi. I was wondering when you're going to tell people when they win, if they won, and they said, uh, they said, oh, uh, we're going to make an announcement in the next couple of days. Man, I to talk to you. I said, yeah, my name's Brad Morgan. I did this film uh, on the ropes. And they said, um, hold on one second. They said, well, I got, we're not supposed to tell this yet, but uh, you won. And I was like, oh, that's phenomenal. I, it's so exciting. It's the weirdest way to. Anyways, it was very sort of like not a big deal back then. There was no press or anything like that. In fact, there were no nominees. 
they just announced someone won, and you so you knew when you came up to the ceremony. This is my first time back here in 16 years, and uh, obviously seeing the red carpet and all of this, it's it's reflects the changes in the field adequately, you know, and how we've been more accepted within the you know broader entertainment community. Um, and uh, to bring it back to Montage of Hack, to receive an award, a craft award in particular, is a huge honor because um, my movies really are first and foremost about explorations of nonfiction filmmaking. That is, if you ask me what Montage of Hack is about, I can tell you what it's about, about on one level, but I will tell you that like all films I've done, I'm always interested in questions of um, documentary truth and, and, and how one defines it and how one can achieve it using different modes of communication. So, um, so we're really happy to receive a craft award. Um, but we, we, it probably helped that our film had the word montage buried in the title. So um, was there anything else that you saw this year that you really, really liked and were glad to see uh, recognized here? Uh, I told Josh Oppenheimer at the uh, Tom Powers New York City Doc Fest that, um, <clears throat> that all of us in the documentary community should simply acquiesce and hand him every award available this year. I think Look of Silence is a film for the ages and um, something that has humbled me and inspired me like no, nothing else. But um, I, I look at the films this year and it's just amazing how far things have come um, creatively in this field. And there's films like Look of Silence and Listen to Me Marlin that are just you know astonishing pieces of filmmaking. How to change the world, which won the, which has nobody talks about in the U.S. Man, I don't know. That film should be in the Academy conversation. It's a masterpiece, and I was so happy to see that honored here. Jerry Rothwell is one of the best filmmakers working, and and I don't know if he gets recognition he warrants or that he should be receiving. So there's tremendous. It's been a tremendous year. Do you think that Look of Silence winning here tonight for Best Feature would be indicative that it might have a good chance of doing the same thing, like, say, at the Oscars? You know, the IDA and the Oscars, sort of how they sync up, has become, um, I, I think, much more fruitful Re in recent years. Back in the day when I won, I don't even think any, there was almost no plurality amongst it. Um, I mean, when we won for On the Ropes, we won the DGA, we won the IDA. And uh, we got nominated for an Oscar, but in today's world, if you win the DGA and IDA, you would think you'd go on. Anyways, uh, Look of Silence, I think hopefully this will cement its, um, its place as a, I think it should be the front runner at this point. It's won everything and it should win everything. Can you tell us anything about what's kind of next on the agenda for you? All right, he's saying no. So we will we will end it there. Thank Brett Morgan very much for giving us a few minutes of his time, and congratulations again tonight. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. We are here with Matthew Heineman, who is the cinematographer and director of Cartel Land, and tonight at the IDA Awards, he won the Courage Under Fire Award, which probably could not be more aptly named. So first, we want to say congratulations, and also thank you for spending a little time with us. Of course. Thank you, everyone. Uh, 
Um, it's obviously it's nice to see you here, but it's nice just nice to see you here generally. Anyone who's seen Cartel Land knows um, how much danger you were in and how appropriate it is that you won this award. Um, can you just talk to a little bit about as the fest, the film has played the festival circuit? What has been? What do people say when they come up to you after they see it? What's always their first react? Is there a first reaction? I think it's generally, uh, what were your parents thinking, or what was your girlfriend thinking? Um, yeah, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a crazy adventure to make. Uh, I'm not a war reporter. I've never been in any situation like that before. So, um, you know, the film was, was absolutely terrifying. Um, but, you know, I felt huge duty and a huge obligation to tell the story. Has there been any change that's been brought about, or do you think anything could change based on when people see your film and when they see what's going on? Could it bring out any action, I guess is what I'm asking. I think, you know, I think one of the things I wanted to do was, was put a face to this violence. You know, there's there's been so much sort of glorification of the narco wars in TV shows and in movies, and I wanted to put you know, myself right in the middle of the action to see how this violence was affecting everyday people, and then the response of everyday, everyday people rising up to fight back. Can you tell us what it felt like to win the award tonight? I know you you dedicated it to a few other people, but what was the reaction once the once your name was called? Well, I knew I knew beforehand that I that I had won, so it, it wasn't a surprise. But it was you know it's very humbling, a huge honor. Um, you know, uh, amazing filmmakers have, have, have won this in the past. Um, so you know, I'm very humbled to uh, to win this award and to to. to um, you know, I think there's there's so many ways to tell uh, important stories, and uh, you know, I think it's not just being. Uh, yeah. Um, if people want to see this movie, what's the best way to get at it right now? So it was in it was in theaters uh, over the summer, and now it's available on iTunes and video on demand and all those digital platforms. It'll be on Annie on January fourth. So, is there uh, anything you can tell us about what you're going to be up to next? <laughs> the next question. Uh, I'm, I'm beginning to uh, develop a few things. Nothing 100% yet. So I'm trying to figure out what that, what that might be. Well, we will once again thank you and congratulate you. I uh, really appreciate you spending a couple minutes with us. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for another episode of the Documentary Podcast. Before we sign out of here, I want to once again thanks everyone who spent a little time with me while I was in L.A., and also in particular Ashley Mariner and Tim Horsberg, who helped me set up interviews. See you next time. You've been listening to The Documentary Podcast. It is co-hosted and co-produced by Steve Byrne and Kathy Kieliszewski, and edited by Kathy Kieliszewski. I am Steve Byrne. I am the arts and entertainment editor at the Detroit Free Press and also the executive director of Freak Film Festival. Kathy is the director of photo and video at the Free Press and the artistic director of Freak Film Festival. You can find us on iTunes and on our website, freakfilmfestival.com, as well as follow us on Twitter at freak underscore film underscore fest and on Facebook at facebook.com slash freakfilmfestival. Music by Killer Tracks with the song Detroit Rhythm by Chris Lang and Eric Cunningham. <laughs>